Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today, I'm chatting with milliner Stephen Jones. Stephen started his illustrious career in the late 1970s, and he makes millinery seem modern and compelling. In materials that were often radical, and designs that ranged from refined to whimsical, he's at the forefront of fashion, and his beguiling hats routinely grace the most celebrated magazine covers and enlivened window displays of the world's most stylish stores. He has dressed everyone from Boy George and Diana Princess of Wales to Rihanna and Lady Gaga. This in addition to his collaborations with Tom Brown and Christian Dior. Stephen, welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. I wanted to start by asking you really a bit about yourself and about how you describe what it is you do for work. I'm delighted to be here and, you know, luxury... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a way of life and podcasts which are a way of life now too who who would have imagined um even though i was always a listener but i'm a milliner based in london um even though i work all over the world and still traveling to paris just about uh, even though it's very complicated nowadays um what with quarantining on both sides of the channel but yes, I make my own millinery collections and work with other designers as well. But I started many years ago. Um, my first hat I made in 1976. So I am 200 years old. 19, I, was going to, I was actually going to ask you about that because I know you were out and about in, you know, in the clubs, you were part of the club scene in, in those days. Mm-hmm. I was thinking how that influenced the way you, you worked then and possibly now. Totally, totally. I mean, I, it was very strange. I was at uh, St. Martin's School of Art, which became Central St. Martin's. And I was doing women's fashion there. And there was a very much a division between fashion with a capital F which are Tutasauras, Dior, Chanel, you know, even Kenzo or something like that, and streetwear, which wasn't considered to be fashion. And I was always much more interested in what my contemporaries were doing. Well, I was very interested in the grand world of haute couture, and I was very interested in what my friends were doing. And what I wanted to do was create something which joined the two or sort of was at the intersection of both of them. But unfortunately, my tutors didn't really like that or understand that, apart from one or two. But yeah, it was very much right place at right time. You know, in 1976, when if you came to London, who wouldn't want to be a punk? If you didn't want to be, I think there would have been something a bit the matter with you. It was just the way to go. It was the only option. It was the new way. And of course, when you're 19 and you have the huge arrogance of youth, you think that anything's possible. And obviously it was. Yeah. Here we are um, a few years later. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I think we we felt that the, as though the world that had gone before was really not to do with us and would not support us. So we had to find our own way. Um, and I think that created a, a real individuality. We we absolutely did not think that the state, society, culture would support us emotionally, financially. So we just had to go and do our own thing. It's interesting because um, I was speaking to Ali Capolino, um, right. to Alison Lloyd, um, not that long ago, and she was um, telling me stories about starting also in the late 70s and 
just how vibrant everything was and how, you know, she used to make her, collect. you know, her first collection, she was saying, was just made from bits of plastic and safety pins and things like that. Also all inspired by, you know, clubbing and um, yeah, street. Yeah. I mean, very different now. I mean, I think now people want to have a certain standard of living, which comes with money. But for us, our lives were completely about finding our own method of self-expression because it really was the way. It wasn't our job. It was our life. It was how we were. Has the approach um, you now take to work, is it different to what it was? Well, yes, it it, it, it is because um, now I'm 64, I'm not 19. So of course things do change. But that excitement of the fact that you have to reinvent yourself every six months is still the same. You know, fashion has got a very short memory. It's a very unkind career. You know, you're 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 only as good as your last collection. You cannot rest on your laurels. I, I mean, maybe you can a bit, but laziness is not tolerated. And that comes with, you know, being a craftsman. Yeah, totally. So could you just give us a little tour of your life as a milliner? There's a fantastic film for your Autumn Winter um, 21 collection on your yeah. website, which is, it's an amazing journey through the creation of a of a hat. Mm-hmm. Could you just give us a tour of that life? So um, basically, I grew up in near Liverpool. I went to boarding school there. We went to play rugby, certainly didn't make learn to make hats. I went to St. Martin's School of Art, and I was doing women's fashion, and I wasn't very good. And my tailoring tutor said to me I had to get extra help. His name was Peter Lewis Crown. He owned a couture house called La Chasse in Mayfair. And in the end of my first year at St. Martin's, I went uh, on work experience. I was the only person I knew who was on work experience. People didn't do that then. I think they did it in the sciences a little bit, but it really wasn't approved of. Um, Anyway, I went to get work experience and I was a tailoring apprentice there. That's what they considered it, uh, making coffee and picking up the pins. Um, But next to the tailoring workroom was a millinery workroom. I transferred and after the first day, it was a bit of a eureka moment and I never looked back. When I left college, uh, I was doing women's wear as well as men's wear. And in fact, I sold dresses to stores in New York. But really what people wanted was my hats. So uh, I left college in um, 1979. And by in 1980, in the October of 1980, I opened up my first little shop in Endell Street with the support of Steve Strange and Princess Julia. Um, who were club hosts of the Blitz. And uh, we had a fantastic opening party and we sold quite a lot of hats. And then I carried on working. I started work, to work with designers. I collaborated with Jasper Conrad and Sandra Rhodes. They were my first designers who I collaborated with. I started to really, I made hats for lots of pop people from Boy George, Spando Ballet, Duran Duran, Annie Lennox, all those people. Communard, um, all those people back then. But also I was making hats for Diana, Princess of Wales and for Ascot. Um, and, and things were going very well. But it's so strange looking back now that, uh, in fact, I had very little press in magazines. 
especially Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, because in those days they were not interested in bright young designers. They wanted established names. And it was Michael Roberts from Tatler, really, who started me off, and Robert Forrest from Brown's store, who agreed to buy, and that's how things really started to happen. But friends always said to me, you know, you should go and work in Paris because they'd really appreciate you over there. Parisians said that to me as well. Please come over here. And eventually I did. Um, I went to visit Azadine Liar really before he had a company. And he introduced me to Thierry Mugler, who was doing big shows. And Azadine became a bit of a sort of guardian angel to me. And also Jean-Paul Gaultier had seen me in Boy George's Do You Really Want to Hurt Me video and asked me to design hats for him. And that was really my entree to Paris. And this was 84, 85, a long, long time ago. Wow. That is, a, it's an amazing story. Yeah. Times have changed, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of the names in the fashion business have changed. I mean, Jasper's still around, Zandra's still around, but there's many, many companies who have come and gone in the in-between time. But I think that's always the way with fashion. You know, it is a revolving door. Uh, very, you know, there is only one Yves Saint Laurent. There is only one Coco Chanel. There is only one Christian Dior. There's lot, lots of them. Everybody would like to be like that. But there's so many things which need to happen in order to make a successful fashion company, which lasts. Um, you know, finance, good quality product, uh, the product which is right for the time, luck, you know, also luck plays an, an incredibly important part. Um, but yeah, it's not an easy thing to do as well. Now, so what do you think has kept you in in work for so long? Because, you know, to main, you, you've said yourself, you know, people come and go, designers come and go, Mugler's not in business anymore, Claude Montano's not in business anymore, uh, Gautier decided, you know, to shut up shop, you know, not to show couture. But you are still, you know, very prolific. Yeah, because I enjoy it. I mean, I, I, I still really enjoy it. It's still a challenge every season. I, I still love making hats. I feel very lucky that at a relatively young age, I found the thing that I really love to do. Also, one of the things is that if you're a fashion designer, it's about creating your own world. You have to have this big ego to think that, yes, everybody should wear A-line dresses or the world should be black this season or no jewellery or lots of hats or whatever they say. And that's extremely important because you have to have that, str that strength and singularity of vision. But if you're a milliner, you have to learn to be a good listener as well as a good talker. Because really, it is what we do is a summation of lots of people's idea. I mean, for example, if I'm working with a designer, you know, they have an idea. The model has an idea. If you're working with a private client, the private client has, has an idea. So it's always a collaboration, really. So therefore, you have to learn how to bend with the wind. And I think for fashion designers, that's actually quite difficult to do because that's the, you know, what's important to them is that they stay true to their spirit and in a way don't change. But the clever ones do. And, uh, you know, that's the great art of being a fashion designer. But why, how am I still doing it? I, I think because I still enjoy it. There's many, many hats to be made out there. 
And I, I suppose that's testament to the success, the enjoyment of and being able to create new things all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And finding new techniques, new crafts, things which are very old techniques that I was taught when I was first starting, which are really milliners who were trained in the 50s by milliners who learned their trade in the 30s. You know, it's a, a real legacy. And combined with the things which are, are, are most modern that maybe we've brought over the internet. And and you try and take the best of both because some old techniques are not so good. And some new techniques are not so good, but also it works vice for some old things are wonderful. I mean, people say to me, so what new fabrics do you like? What do, are you excited by new fabrics? Yes, sometimes. But if you want a beautiful white, there's nothing as beautiful as white cotton. You know, white cotton as how it looks, white cotton as a symbol. You know, white cotton as a symbol is so strong. If you think of it in menswear or children's wear or new sheets or white cotton, you know, uh, uh, white cotton, I don't know, in a handkerchief. It's such a symbol. Uh, you know, white polyester hasn't got the same ring to it. And same if people say black, you know, what's the best black? Is it, you know, black high-tech nylon? No, the best black is black velvet. But if you want a fabric which lights up, obviously you're talking about a modern fabric. That leads us nicely onto the design process. Tell us a bit about your creative process. Again, I don't want to keep going back to the film, but I just found it an amazing thing to watch. And it was too short because it was only 15 minutes. But you were talking about Paris being an inspiration to you. Tell us a bit about your design process or your creative process. I'm always designing in my head. It's just sometimes it goes down on paper. When I'm working, for example, I spend probably two-thirds of my time working with Christian Dior now from the women's collections from Mary Grazia Curie and the men's collections with Kim Jones and the baby collections with Cordelia de Castellan. Um, so that keeps me very, very busy. But certainly on my own collection, which is in a way my baby, I it's just a feeling in the air. How can you say what it is? Uh, I mean, you can't really analyze fashion. Yes, fashion works in a particular way, but also, for example, to be fashionable is one point of view. When a client buys one of my hats, they want it to be Stephen Jones. They want it to look maybe British. And you, there's these are these are the different bottles of spice jars of spice that you have that you put into the into the recipe um, and they're they're all used for every hat but in different proportions you know are they, are they going to beautify the customer are they a dream are they um, practical maybe their practicality is the fact that they're not practical you know maybe it is that fantastic extravaganza which makes somebody feel like somebody else not like them at all the last thing they want to do is feel like them you know the reason they're coming to me is for something which takes them out of themselves so when i'm designing it's uh, so many different elements but basically what i do is that every six months i put my thinking cap on and I think, well, which way is it going to go? And sometimes it's a whim. 
Sometimes it's really carefully thought out at the very beginning. But the collections are very carefully thought out. You know, I will, and and there'll be lots of different influences. Uh, the reason why it has to be like that. So, for example, um, I'm working on a big project in France for in a couple of years' time, but I'd never done a collection based on France. So that's why I created this winter's collection called French Kiss, and it's about my love affair with France, and maybe. Also, as well、uh, about having a French lover. Okay, wearing one of your hats. Wearing one of my hats, yeah. Or French lovers in general, seen from a completely Anglo-Saxon point of view. What is it about? I mean, everybody I spoke to about this in France, French people. I said, you know, the idea of a French lover is a complete myth. But in the Anglo-Saxon brain, well, maybe it is this sort of wonderful thing which makes. An attraction, in the same way that the idea of an Anglo-Saxon lover for a French person is sort of exotic, bizarrely enough, <laughs> but it sort of is. But they find it sort of charming and sort of countryside-ish and a little bit old world, sort of romantic, right? Because of that, a bit of vice and virtue, town and country. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Well, hopefully, lots of vice. <laughs> yes. In the country, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I wanted to、uh, touch on craftsmanship. When we spoke about craftsmanship, all those,、uh, all that time ago, you you had said to me that luxury and craftsmanship go hand in hand. Do you still think that's the case? Absolutely. I think there's a big question about what is luxury. I mean, luxury can be simplicity and purity.、Uh, luxury is time. Luxury can be all sorts of different things, but I think in clothing terms, luxury is maybe care, individuality, responsibility—all those different things. But I think the last thing that any of us needs is more clothes. We live in the in the wealth in wealthy Western Europe,、uh, and even if we don't, there are so many clothes produced. So I think now, when If we want to buy clothes, of course there are some purchases which are more spontaneous. But there's some things where luxury can be part of almost a study. It's like, are you going to spend your time going on holiday? No, I'm going to spend that time on having something made for me specially, which I'm really going to treasure. And it's the same thing as putting it on the wall, but I'm going to put it on my body, or maybe it's going to be in a glass case. In my bedroom because I love it as an object. I, I think that luxury, the idea of luxury, is still extremely important. But I think time, individuality, all those things is, is more important of whether it's made from crocodile or not. So I think a sort of a cerebral luxury is as important as the physical luxury of the thing too. How do you go about communicating luxury through through the things you make? Through your hats, I think it. I I think it's the technique when people, for example, we the film that we talk about. It shows a little bit the process, the months and months of work that go into everything, not only the actual making of the hat, but in the designing of it and whether it is beige or off white.、Um, the the luxury and the time of making those decisions, spending that money on making those decisions, but. Also, 
taking the best fabrics, the best fabrics for the job. And normally that is taking the finest silks and the best wools and the best felt. And Because funnily enough, in millinery, those will do more for you. They're more pliable. They, uh, we have less problems using them, often with something which is not of good quality. It, it can't be made into such a good hat because it won't do all those things that you need it to do. Because strangely enough, the two things are actually the same. You spoke about um, learning some of your skills from hat makers who learned their skills in the 30s or 40s. Mm. I often think about craftsmanship as something you know that is um, obviously learned with um, a lot of patience and trial and error, but also through this hand-me-down. How did that impact the way you work? The craft and the art of millinery is something that is hugely important because often people will do a sketch with a pencil, but they have don't have any idea how to make it. Uh, I was very lucky to be taught by somebody called Shirley Hex, who then went on to t- teach Philip Tracy and Noel Stewart, but I think I was the first person that she actually taught e- extraordinary techniques of how to make this 2D object, i.e. a piece of fabric, how to make it 3D and put it on somebody's head. So I remember Mrs. Heck saying to me, well, you never stop learning. You learn new things every season. And that's something that I do every season. We have to relearn all our old tricks, very definitely. As you're talking, I'm just thinking about engineering and architecture. Well, my father was an engineer, and I, I think it's completely genetic. And my mother was a gardener, so she was completely about pattern and color. So even though I wanted to be a punk rebel, eventually you realize you cannot escape the genes of your parents, sadly. Or actually, when you get older, you think, well, great, so be it. But I remember the first time my mother said to me, God, you remind me of a father. I thought, oh, no, no. I think uh, engineering and architecture, absolutely. Um, My father was an engineer, and he loved engines. And when I was growing up, I worked on cars. So that manual side of things absolutely i understand and architecture i mean i sort of wanted to be an architect as well that was when i was at school i was thinking yeah i'd like to be an architect eventually um i did get a place at at london university to do architecture but i didn't take that place um and i went on to foundation in high wickham instead, and then onto St. Martin's. When you're making or designing these hats, you're, you're talking about transferring something from 2D to 3D to this physical mm-hmm. object. I mean, there is a um, an absolute skill required to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the skill is something that you learn and you never finish learning it because, in fact, many milliners work only in 3D. I work in 2D. So I do a sketch and I'm very good in my mind's eye imagining it, how it looks from the front. I'll do a front view and a side view and a top view and a blah, blah, blah. Um, because I've always worked internationally. So my designs have had to be, first of all, sent as documents, second, faxed, third, email, um, fourth, FaceTimed or communicate. You know, it's very, I, I, I mean, I, I, what I do is really about communication. 
That's why things are drawn. That's why things are in 2D. That's why the whole idea of engineering drawings translate into my work. But, and we mentioned about architecture as well. And architecture and hats are very similar when you live in, when you put on top of your head. But basically, it's about full proportion color, volume, balance, et cetera. Et cetera. Yeah, balance, exactly. It fascinates me how, I mean, some of the hats. Um, that you've made that I've seen seen in your shop and just seen on paper. It just amazes me how these just stay where they need to be. Well, yes, it's it's quite difficult to make that happen, but that's one of the tricks of being a milliner, that you do have to make things which are comfortable and can be gripped on, or if they're slightly uncomfortable because it's very much about the look and, and looking fabulous, you know, at what point... Can it not look so fabulous, but then it's easy to wear? But it, it's it's funny about hats and keeping them on and comfort and all of that. Would you say that a pair of high heels is comfortable? No, no one would say. But what it does, it changes the woman's body and makes her feel completely different. So a hat, yeah, and the same with the hat. Totally. I was thinking um, just about luxury and whether or not you then think that it's exemplified through this um, tangible object, or do you think that it can be created without having that physical, the physical artifact? I know you spoke oh, about yeah. it. Oh, yeah. I mean, the luxury is the process too. You know, it's about coming here to our store in Covent Garden or going to one of the very exclusive boutiques around the world that may carry our hats and making an appointment and looking through everything and maybe you're picking something from this season maybe you're picking something from 10 years ago or a photograph or you know sometimes like hairdressers people will come in and say oh i saw this hat and i'd love to have something like that and maybe it's one of mine maybe it's somebody else maybe it's a historical hat and you try and find out why they want to have that and what does it represent to them? So it's a lot of talking communication. So they're, they're wearing this hat and, and uh, then you find, after conversation, you find out that maybe their favorite aunt had a hat like that, but they look completely different. So often it's a process of education as well as what the customer thinks they want to have at the very beginning. But, you know, we negotiate and, and educate and help and, but, you know, it, sometimes it works the other way around. I remember a very regular client of mine who has worked in the city was always incredibly chicly dressed in Armani, in navy blue. And she was remarrying. And I said, so what do you want to have? Uh, do you want to have something a little bit sculptural? And she said, Stephen, I want to look pretty. It's my wedding. So, of course, you know, the, in, a, in a way, the customer is always right. But... I can be right too. And that's a bit of negotiation, but that's the luxury. That's the luxury. And then translate that conversation and those ideas into something that you put onto a head. It's the process as well as the physical object, which is so important. And what about the materials? I remember you said to me that authentic luxury is also about materials. I think that's what you said yes. to me. Yes. I mean, I think it's a certain sort of honesty of, about materials. Um, it's an authenticity, but in materials. But I think most importantly for what we do here, because I'll use any material if it serves a purpose. 
For us, the most important thing about luxury is the technique, because I can say there are probably only three or four design houses, millinery milliners in the entire world who can make hats in the techniques that we use. And in those within those houses, there's probably only about 10 people in the entire world who can make something to the level that I can make here in my studio. And if you think how many luxury leather workers there are, there's probably 10,000, 15,000 everywhere. But what we do is so specialist in that technique um, that it's really the ultimate, really is the ultimate. Do you think there's a difference then between what you are producing? Because it's so specialized, Mm -hmm. requiring such skill. Is there a difference between that and then what the bigger luxury brands are are doing when they are producing tens of thousands of units um, and then still calling it luxury? Oh, it's very different. Very, very different. What we're producing in the way that Dior, Chanel, Valentino do, which is haute couture, we produce the hat version of haute couture. And in French, it's called haute mode. And um, that's what I've always done. But real haute mode is a combination of design, technique, material. And very few people do that because it's a very difficult thing to do and very expensive thing to do. And technically, not many people can do it. Uh, Material-wise, not many people can afford it. And design-wise... You know, not many people have that particular level of design. So, for example, within the luxury businesses, you know, you could say that any designer fashion is luxurious, and it is luxurious because they use good quality materials. But that level of technique and taking it to a to another level, no, they don't. Of creativity with materials, with technique. How do we? Um, encourage more people to engage in these types of processes of making so as not to lose them? Because if you're saying there are only 10 of you... What will happen it, What will happen is it will change. And the only reason that fashion is fashion is that it does change. So it has to hold on to what's good from the past and really find what's a good future but it, it will it will change and there'll be new techniques created and invented um and you know i look even if, sorry milliners um milliners who are much younger than me you know they are finding new techniques new ways of doing things what when we talk about haute mode or haute couture hats it's not necessarily haute couture, but one day it will become that way. It makes me, I suppose, quite sad that we are losing, mm-hmm. you know, the the tradition of of making in the way that you make. Because yes, I agree, change, you know, is is inevitable. Um, but certain skills to for them to be lost for whatever reason just seems to me to be a bit of a yeah shame. I I know when I was starting off. Um, I said to um, 
it was after a couple of years going during the holidays and things. I said to Shirley Hex, oh, I'm sorry, I don't think I can come back next holidays. And she said, I don't want you here anyway. I said, what do you mean? And she said, I've talked to you enough. You have to go and find your own way. Don't listen to my techniques, which I learned 30 years ago. She said, have to find your way for your generation. And that's what will make, that's what is the best thing for you. Um, and, and I really, so she had to push me out of the nest. I had to find my own way. What I was personally into was very much that traditional technique. I was into that sort of 50s world of luxury and design, um, which she wasn't into at all. She wanted it to be resolutely modern, but beautifully made. If it's beautifully made, there is yes. still obviously an element of craftsmanship regardless of... Absolutely. So that means whether it's old or new, absolutely, there has to be supreme craftsmanship in it. Mm. Okay, that's a bit more reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> we don't want to lose, uh, you know. Um, you, you know, like you said earlier, you see so much stuff that is mass-produced and all over the world, and then you have these nuggets, I guess we could call them, are yeah. you know very special things which mm -hmm. people have taken time to produce yes which is important it's important yeah i think too. it's the time is is a very important element in it but uh you know the luxury is a combination of different things it's not just one thing yeah yeah absolutely yeah and it's a concept it's a concept how how would you um define it how would i define luxury funny it's almost like Respect or something like that. And how would you define craftsmanship? Respect for materials, respect for technique, respect for the person that you're making it for, respect for the fact that it's been handed down for generations and generations, that you are a link to before and a link to after. So you have to take your role seriously. But that's the point of view of a 64-year-old man, I, I, the whole thing about be, being in flux, but, you know, what's luxury? Um, yeah, I think it's respect. I mean, you have that experience and knowledge mm -hmm. that many people who are much younger, you know, in their 20s and 30s don't, so no. they may not even appreciate. No, I think they appreciate luxury, but, you know, uh, absolutely. But to them, the luxury that they will take will be different. I mean, luxury for them in a physical object might be the fact that it is sustainable, that it is uh, original, that it is, you know, it might not be to do with luxury labels as we know it. Uh, so the, their point of view might be very different. But I think you have to be true to, true to your age. That's what's sort of important, really. Um, and also understand that other people will have different points of view about luxury. That, you know, all in everything, everybody has different point of view. I mean, how boring would life be if everybody agreed on everything anyway? I mean, there might be, having said that, there'd be less wars. But. And interesting you said, and that's exactly why I started doing this podcast, because everybody has an opinion about what luxury may or may not mm -hmm. be. Yeah. And it's you know, it could be, you know, really political and it could be very much about the the product 
and that's why that's what I think makes this um, these conversations so interesting. Yeah, luxury. So I would reiterate for me, luxury is respect. Yeah, and I love that. Um, I think it's a, it's fantastic because it fits so well with this idea of um, specialness and craftsmanship and um, honouring traditions and materials and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could say luxury is time mm. as well, uh, but that is very specific. But luxury, I mean, is time, you know, whether it's to create something, whether it is as many days or seconds we have left on this planet, uh, whether, you know, et cetera, et cetera, how much time you have to spend with your children, how much time has been spent making this beautiful dress or hand wearing a hat, wearing a hat. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, yeah. This might be a slightly odd question, but do people, are there still as many people wearing hats as the, I mean, there oh, wouldn't yeah. be as the 30s, but maybe. No, no, I mean, hats, hats are very different now to what they used to be when I first started 40 years ago. In those days, hats were very much department store purchase. Now, if you go into any shop, they will sell a few hats. I mean, of course, they're going to be like a little bucket hat or a knitted beanie or something like that, but they're still hats. And as far as hats for special occasions are concerned, yes, people can buy them online, but they can go to a milliner and have them made. Uh, but hats are worn around the world normally for specific reasons. So in Britain, they're worn, um, really, hats are worn during the summer, spring and summer, for social events. If you think of hats where hats worn in winter, well, uh, be if 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 people go outside in Russia in winter, if you don't have a hat on, you know, and and those are in a way practical hats. Or similarly in Australia, uh, to keep the sun off your head, they have, to have a practicality. But within the English social system and going to Royal Ascot or weddings or whatever, its practicality is the fact that it is a fancy hat. That is its practicality. And it's showing, what's it showing when you put a hat on? It's showing your sense of fun, your sense of style, your sense of fashionability, how much money you have, your investment in the product. That's what it's showing about you. But, but fancy hats follow racing around the world too. So that's why Kentucky Derby wear hats, uh, Ascot, the Pre-Diane in, in France, um, Hong Kong, Dubai, Melbourne. I mean, the, the, uh, the Melbourne Cup, it's the biggest horse race in the world. Um, and they actually have a national holiday for the final day of the Melbourne Cup in Australia. It's that important. Huge amounts of money gambled on it. Huge amounts of champagne drunk by 11 o'clock in the morning. And what more could you want? <laughs> yes, exactly. You're talking about Moscow. I was in Moscow once, and it was, I think, minus 38. And a lady came out of um, the, the hotel, and she was in a tiny white mini with white stilettos, and it was snowing and icy outside, minus 38, and she was wearing a hat. Yes, yes. Well, if you keep your head warm, the rest of you seems to be warm too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, and I'm not sure about the mini, but the fantastic thing about the stilettos is that 
Russian girls do wear stilettos in the snow because, of course, the heels go straight through the snow and they don't slip. If they're wearing sensible flats, it's a disaster. I wanted to ask you, um, we don't have um, too much time left. I know you've got um, other things to do, but I just wanted to ask you about a bit about technology and how that's impacted the way you work, I mean, to- if at all. Totally, totally, totally. Um, it's strange because going into lockdown... Everybody started doing FaceTimes or Zooms or communicating electronically. But that's something that I've done for years anyway. Um, I, I'm, I'm always traveling. So I'm always doing a sketch on the back of an envelope, taking a photograph of it, sending it back to the head of my workroom, having fittings with New York, for example, um, uh, over internet communications. So uh, technology has changed things hugely as far as communication is concerned. As far as designing is concerned, uh, not so much. I mean, I still like putting pencil to paper, but if I need to find a meter of red velvet, I, we will look for it on the internet. I won't be going to a department store to the haberdashery department or the fabric department to find it. But just because when I'm looking on the internet, I have the whole world to purchase from as opposed to a local place. And what about your techniques? Have they, because um, uh, am I correct in saying that the f- you, you have forms, are they all made in, in wood? Traditional materials? Yeah, they're are all they made, wood? made in wood. Yeah, and the people who make them, and it's an incredibly traditional industry and business, um, and there are two or three people in Britain. There's two people in France. There's nobody in Germany anymore. One person in Italy, two people in Japan. Um, I mean, it's, that is an incredibly rare thing too. Often people will say, oh, well, I can, I can make them, I can work wood. Well, yes, they probably can do, but can they work wood so it looks beautiful on the face? No, it's a very different job. So, What about um, 3D printing? Have you yes, kind absolutely. of delved into that? Yes, absolutely. The only problem with 3D printing is that it's fragile and heavy. And what you want your hat to be is, you know, uh, resilient and light. But they, because it, it's often they're often printing in plastics. It's not light and resilient. It's quite the very opposite, really. Even though you can make some great shapes and you can make some great trimmings, it's not as successful as one wished it could be. What about um, using three D CAD software? Do you use any of that, or you? Because I know you were saying, you know, you sometimes. Call... I mean, for certain processes, and obviously, if we're doing graphics or something like that, yes. But actually, normally, when we're making a hat, no, no, that's done. You know, here's actually funny enough. I really did these pictures, and they were on the back of an envelope. Oh well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> They look very oh, well. They are. I was going to say something quite stupid. I was going to say they look very Stephen Jones. Yeah. Well, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I suppose the final question is really about sustainability and kind of your thoughts around that and the materials you use and yeah. your engagement in that practice. Well, very fortunately, we're making hats which use small amounts of material for huge effect. So from the very beginning, uh, I mean, we ha- we're, we're in a very good standpoint, much better than the rest of the fashion business, which, of course, is really about consuming lots and lots of raw materials and not being sustainable. But we are also, with all our hats, you know, so many, so often people never throw hats away. They can throw shoes away, but hats are normally imbued with too much meaning. 
you know, it, it was, oh, I bought it because it was my son's wedding or that was the day that I went to Ibiza with my sister and we went to a fantastic club and I wore that hat and I, you know, people don't throw the hats away. So because of that, they are sustainable and we rework things all the time. People say, I bought this hat five years ago. Can you re-steam it? Yes. And we put a new trim on it. So it's remade. It's just the nature of our business. I was just thinking about what you were saying about the Blitz. Were you all wearing hats? I'm not going to say I'm slightly obsessed with that, but were you all wearing hats when you were going clubbing in those in those days? A lot of people wearing hats, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, why would you stop at your neck? You want to carry on and make your head, your hair, your hat, whatever, spectacular too. The way one dressed to go clubbing was very different to today because it was much more about personal identity, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think now it's still about personal identity for a certain group of people. But then, especially it was, you know, if you're into David Bowie, you'd be dressing completely differently to if you're into Led Zeppelin. As if you, and even if you were into Roxy music, you'd be dressing, dressing differently to if you were dressing for David Bowie. Because, you know, each musical figurehead had a certain set of followers and uh, with a certain nuance. But those things that still exist today, absolutely, dressing like your idol. Stephen, I just wanted to end on asking you what your luxury is. My luxury? It's funny, before we mentioned about time, I think my personal luxury is time. Um, time to do things, time to spend time with friends, spend time on myself, spend time designing. Yeah, that and expensive fragrance, a first-class ticket. I mean, I think it's like time and all the, the really silly things too. I mean, why is it that a couple of weeks ago, I went into Comte de Garçon and bought quite an expensive wallet in there? I could have carried my possessions around in something plastic, but the fact... <laughs> I loved it coming in a little box and all those things. I know it was it's a bit silly, but it does the trick. And it cheered me up no end. And what more would you want? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was worth it. This has been fantastic. Thank you Great. so, so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Stephen Jones, thank you so much for chatting. It's been inspirational. Well, thank you. It's been great to share a little bit of my life and the wonderful world of hats. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks to our partners, Intellect Books, and thank you for listening. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.